So welcome once again to our St. Michael's podcast. I'm Michael Saragioli, and this week we're continuing our exploration of the church's tradition of social teaching. Uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Vincent Miller, who came on to our Abide series uh, in which we took a deeper look at Catholic social teaching. And Dr. Miller is a theologian from the University of, of Dayton. And he talked to us in our series and Again, we want to deepen this conversation about what theology has to say to ecology, uh, about a spirituality that's attentive to our ecological situation, and a little bit uh, about what's going on here in our home state of Oregon. So among other research interests, Dr. Miller specializes in Pope Francis's 2015 ecological encyclical Laudato Si on care for our common home. It's a document that I would argue grows more timely with each day that it ages and that becomes more relevant the more we, we tend to forget it. So I want to ground our conversation here uh, as a way for way in for people who might be less familiar with the territory. And starting with the least uh, familiar camp, that would be those who are outside of the church, which is actually a fair place to start because Pope Francis presents Laudato Si as a dialogue with all people who care about our common home. So I wanna ask, what does Francis have to say in this document to everybody? What is, what is important about this document um, for, for anyone who, who might uh, meet it? Well, thanks, Michael. That's a, that's a great question and a great place to start. Uh, I think maybe the most straightforward way to answer it is the way he addresses it, right? It's uh, to all people who share our common home. So, the environment creation of the non-human part of the world uh, isn't aren't just things that are out there for us to use, right? That's it's literally where we dwell, right? It's 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 what sustains us. Um, so there is there is a a common concern created by our common uh, state as people who dwell uh, within creation. Um, so not everyone will call it creation, right? Some people want to call it nature, um, but from the start, he's questioning that divide, right? That it's humans here and the rest of the world out there. Uh, in fact, we're, we're united and we depend upon each other. Um, I think, I mean, the, the encyclical also offers a, a number of places where people uh, without either Christian faith or, or, or religious belief maybe could hold on to. Um, you know, the opening documents, the, the opening paragraphs, you know, really talk about um, attending carefully to the best science we have, uh, not out, just out of curiosity, right, but to let it touch us deeply uh, so that the, the suffering of the world can become our own suffering. And in that, we can find out how to respond to it. Um, so certainly there's a, maybe a Christian imagination undergirding that, that, that understanding of shared suffering, uh, but he's, he's building it upon the work of science. Uh, uh, he, he's also presenting a vision of faith that, uh, that wants to dialogue with science and be engaged with science. So in that sense, even though it remains religious, there's clearly this olive branch being offered uh, to uh, enter into common work together. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so, so having said that, I would like to bring up to the, the place where the, uh, the Christian imagination, as you said, which undergirds it, where it really does figure in. Because I've heard you say before, you know, that Laudato Si, isn't a document that's simply concerned with getting the church up to speed as if the Catholic Church were to, as some 
media misconstruals might offer as, as the church is finally opening its eyes to the reality of environmental degradation and taking a seat at the conservationist table uh, or something like that. Um, it, it, it's not a caving into social or political pressure or really an extrinsic program yeah. that Laudato Si is, is offering. In other words, it's not the old man getting on the dance floor and surprising everybody <laughs> as he listens to the, you know, you know, the younger people's music and breaks out some moves. It's, it's not that kind of thing. Um, so you talked about how it's, it's deeply rooted in the theological and spiritual commitments of the church. Um, so we might say it's church, the church listening to the music of the spheres and the one who turns the spheres, to put it really grandiosely. Um, but so what is the unique Catholic contribution to ecological thought and, and action, and how is it manifested in Laudato Si? Yeah, that's another great question. One of the things I, I, I wrestle with or I chafe with in, in, in conversations about Laudato Si is, is um, many people view it as, you know, the church sort of brings this moral authority to environmental questions, and it, it, it's now it's now encouraging, exhorting its, its members to go out there and care about these things. And all of that's true, right? This is this is a, this is a moral call. This is a prophetic, um, you know, challenge to uh, the church and the world to respond to the dire predicament that that we're in with the rest of creation. Uh, if we look more deeply at what's going on in terms of theology, Catholic-wise and encyclical, we can see there are some other bases of, of transformation here. Um, so I always I find paragraph two forty uh, towards the end of the encyclical to be very much the, the spiritual. Uh, core of the encyclical where he lays out this trinitarian vision um you know he talks about how the divine persons are subsistent relations and the world echoing made according to the divine model also shows this relational character right so the relational character of the world echoes the, the divine relations in the trinitarian communion um so on that level this this deep catholic vision uh that reality reflects the the inner divine life of god Right. And so uh, what we encounter mystically in prayer, liturgically in prayer, um, when we go to the world, we expect to find these connections there as well. We expect to find things engaged with, under, with one another in relationship, both socially, right, that, you know, the Catholic vision of the person is not of uh, isolated individuals that, you know, decide for their own self-interest to come together, but we are, we are born into community. We are raised by a community. We flourish as a community. There's a common good. Um, the so there's that vision of the nature of reality that's at the heart of Catholicism that Lodato C applies to environmental questions. Uh, and then there's, there's derived from that a way of seeing, um, in, in philosophy you'd say an epistemology, a way of understanding the world, uh, one that's deeply attentive to these interrelationships, right? So we, we go to the world and, and, and we're curious and we're solicitous for the relationships that we can find. You know, wh what are the relationships that support this community? What are the relationships that support our, our, our urban area or, you know, our, our nation or our region? Um, likewise, you know, what are the, what are the relationships uh, between humans and the, and the rest of creation? What are the relationships in ecological systems and biomes um, that, that, that allow these places to flourish? What's holding all this together? Um, those are things that are easy to overlook, right? We can just look around and say, you know, here's, here's the person who's serving me my dinner. Here's the person who's, you know, driving my bus. I, I have no other need for them, but really we're deeply connected. Uh, I, you know, I can look at the forest and say, here's a bunch of timber or at a field and say, here's a place where I can grow food um, without seeing those connections. And so the second level is really the, of transformation is, is to be solicitous for, to be 
engaged in finding these connections and honoring them um, and delighting in them. Uh, and finally, from that comes this moral dimension, which is these relationships are good and willed by God, and they they demand our um, our efforts to preserve them, uh, to deepen them, and to restore them. Uh, but it's on those three levels, and the, and the first level really begins, you know, in the heart of the divine life, uh, and in in the, the way in which creation depends upon God, which is a deeply Catholic and Christian vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now we're we're confronting the um, the unfortunate side of our interconnection, obviously through this pandemic, understanding it as you know really reckoning with it, with the global nature of this phenomenon, the the way in which it of course spreads so rapidly, and um, all of a sudden finding us ourselves under fire in 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 so many respects. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I, I think Pope Francis saw this pandemic when it, when it was first arising um, as connected uh, in part with some of the ways in which we have allowed our relationship with the earth and our relationship with one another to suffer. Uh, I remember in his Orbi at Orbi address, this is his address to the church and the world in Vatican Square right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. Um, it was on that dark, rainy, foreboding day. I remember the images, Pope Francis all alone out in in, in uh, Vatican Square. If there's not an iconic image uh, in that, I don't know where there is one. Um, but he said something like this. He says, we've carried on at breakneck speed, ignoring wars, ignoring the injustice and poverty in our midst, ignoring the, the state of the planet, really. And I remember him saying, we, we carried on thinking that we could stay healthy while the world became sick. And so there you have something that, you know, the resurfacing of this kind of thinking that, that's present in, in Laudato Si. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, of course, there's, there's that address. And Pope Francis was calling us to a deeper meditation about our lifestyles. Uh, whether we're breathless or not and feel like we're always in a kind of crisis mode, there may be a question as to whether we have time for meditation in between the the pandemic, kind of dunking our heads into the water and these quick uh, grasps for for air. Um, So given given that that we do have this opportunity, where do we begin uh, with this situation spiritually? How do we we deal with it? What, what, What should we be attentive to? That's a great way to put it. Um, I, I think there are lessons in in the sorrow. There are lessons in in, in the pandemic itself. Certainly, Francis highlighted, you know, that, that great quote that you just spoke there. We know that uh, we thought we could go on while the world was sick um, and not attending to it. And certainly, pandemics we know are coming from our disruption of natural ecosystems and, and bringing viral ecologies into relationship to humans that previously hadn't been. Um, but as the pandemic unfolds, right, there, there are lessons in the very suffering that we experience, you know, that, um, you know, we have this amazing, you know, overwhelming lesson of, the, of our commonality, right? What begins as an outbreak in a part of China that most of the world has never heard of before um, within several weeks or a month, right, is all over the world and, and changing everyone's life. Um, there's, there's this temptation as the, as, the, as the vaccines come out to think like it's over for us, right? Um, but the lesson remains 
the lesson continues that we, we still remain tied to every other human being on the planet, right? If, if, if anyone is getting sick with COVID anywhere, there's a chance that um, that'll bring forth some sort of variant um, that'll rebound to all of us, right? So literally we have this experience of the common good where we can't just vaccinate our, ourselves as a wealthy nation and think we've, we're done with it, right? We, we need to take care of everyone. Uh, out of a moral obligation to our fellow human beings, but also out of out of concern for the common good, right? We can only flourish if they flourish. There's there are no walls here, and so in 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 the terror and the disruption of of the pandemic, there's also this revelation of of our true interconnectedness of the of the true fact that there is a global common good uh, that encompasses every human being on the planet and the rest of creation as well. And when those things are are wounded and broken, we will be too. And that. That's a that's a rare lesson where it's we're forced to confront it so so clearly. Uh, unfortunately, it's also proven to be a lesson that is easy to ignore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing way to think about it to see the the um, opening up to a vision of the common good, precisely in our our common suffering. Um, speaking of of uh, a, a kind of deeper vision of things, and I want to go back to. Laudato Si, and um, talk about what informed Pope Francis's vision there. Um, I, I read this book by Romana Guardini, a theologian who I know influenced Pope Francis. It's called The End of the Modern World. Um, and uh, it's quoted throughout chapter three of, of Laudato Si. And Guardini offers this, this vision. It's kind of a sweeping historical narrative, starting with the medieval period when we had a more unified uh, integrated picture of the cosmos, of ourselves, of, of religious life. Um, and then he leads all the way onto uh, the modern age. And this is a modern age at about the time that he was writing, um, 1950, still relevant for us today. He, he might say that we're still in this age, or at the very least, we're in the age that is the heir to this epoch. Anyway, he talks about a new relationship with nature developing, a new, more attenuated. Uh, form of relationship that is relating to nature in a more abstract, more formalized, more indirect kind of uh, fashion. And Guardini says that the people to whom he was speaking, uh, now maybe us, were living in a period in which if the intricacy of natural connections were grasped at all, they were grasped almost through mathematical formulae. So he talked about how he would tend to use nature uh, to exploit it or plunder it in the worst of cases. Um, and he sees this, this period as one in which we're hampered by a moral insensitivity in that we're out of touch with our actions and their consequences. So a classic example that, that, that I thought of that um, you know, I, I think Francis might, might see as well as problematic would be the case of say an investor in New York making certain portfolio decisions that then contribute to the leveling of rainforests in Amazon, right? Nothing in his day-to-day -day life makes that kind of decision real to him. Um, so Guardini's naming this undifferentiated technological paradigm, uh, a kind of paradigm in which we seek for the lordship overall through our technology, kind of boldly puts it in that way. And Pope Francis speaks about a technocratic paradigm, you know, the, 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 the continuation of this of this way of thought. And he worries about an ethos, a rhythm of life, an objectifying way of, of looking at the world. 
So what in, in a word is the, the substance of this kind of critique? Um, and I don't want to tack on this question, where does America figure in? But, but what should we <laughs> train our sights on when we, when, when we hear this kind of narrative and, and we see um, Francis speaking to, to some of these points? I, I suppose what I'd answer to that, and some of my earlier work on consumer culture addressed some of these questions. And I, I, I think that disconnect is really fundamental to the formation of our imaginations. Um, I, I don't think we necessarily have, I don't think all of us necessarily have ideologies of, of, of domination in our heads. Uh, we, we just live in a world of disconnection, right? So we don't actually know what we're doing. Um, an example I, I use is, you know, I have no idea like how much, how much coffee am I entitled to? Right. There's there's not a there's not a coffee plant within three thousand miles of where I sit. Um, you know, uh, if I was a subsistence farmer, uh, you know, growing grain and vegetables and such, you know, I would know like how much I get. Right. I need to. I I, I can't eat my seed corn. Um, but for um, for most of the things in our lives, we have absolutely no connection whatsoever to their to their origins, and so we don't have any real way of imagining their their true costs. Right. We don't know. Um, we have, you know, so many baked goods we consume have palm kernel oil on them, right? Which are, which is tied directly to deforestation. But we see, you know, the the scone in the in the coffee shop. You know, we don't. And there's no label on the back that says, you know, twenty acres in in Indonesia was was turned into palm plantations for this, right? And and uh, uh, one orangutan was cast out of out of her home. Um, so we we don't see those connections. And so I think one of the things I think about when I hear Guardini's talk is that. You know, just how powerful of a formation of imagination that is when we don't we're not shown the connections and the connections are something we have to establish on our own time right i can go find out about those things if, if someone tells me about them i can work on say palm kernel oil um it requires effort and so uh we live in a world of detached things uh, uh things that don't seem to have much of a cost beyond what we pay for them you know can we afford them or not um and that colonizes the rest of our lives. We have a very hard time seeing connections. So the, I, I think one of the ways of responding to this is, is, is to seek connections, to do it as, as something of a meditative practice. Uh, pick something you consume uh, that's important to you, and then just try to find out everything you can about it. Um, pick one shirt, where did it come from? And suddenly you realize your whole closet's got stories it's not telling you, right? Um, you know, pick one food stuff. Um, not necessarily with the idea of changing your consumption, but just to see how, what's supporting you, where we come from. The other thing I think with Guardini um, is I'm really struck by, um, you know, he was born in an era before electrification. And I think that there are sort of generations on these cusps that see things that subsequent generations don't see, right? Because once, once things are electrified, we're living in this world of our own time scale. Um, you know, inside is always fine. So I think, you know, looking back, part of tradition in its living character has to be attending to what previous generations can see, um, uh, whether that's Guardini, who's you know, from a generation past, or it's in our own lives. You know, we've had such revolutions in technology since ten years ago, right? Um, having a conversation across that divide about how things have changed, I think that's part of living tradition as well that we should we should cultivate in some way. Yeah, great. And now I, I'm I'm thinking maybe a a question kind of pushing further in this direction because there's what we can do on, on a personal level and being more aware of the, the things that we consume, where they come from, you know, more aware of opportunities even to live outside of, of a hyper kind of technical space. I say this as we're uh, carrying out this conversation via Zoom. But um, 
I'm also, you know, and, and it's a concern that that comes up for me because there's a way in which what both Guardini and, and Pope Francis are pointing towards is a kind of cast of mind, right? Um, that may even transcend the individual decisions that we're making. And you don't want to take a fatal, a fatalistic sort of view, like there's no way out of this kind of thinking. At points in, in the end of the, the modern world, Guardini does say, you know, we've entered uh, this new sort of technical age and we're bound, we're fated to live within it. So what are the Christian opportunities and what is a Christian responsibility within this space? And what he comes to is we still have, you know, no matter what kind of um, uh, relationship, organic relationship to the world we might lose, no matter how much we might lament a kind of disconnection, we're still free before God, we're still free in the obedience to faith and uh, still free to be in a way, uh, heroic in, in our discipleship to Jesus Christ. So I really appreciated um, where he came to, you know, it, it's, it's not some kind of doomsayer wherein at the end of the end of this narrative, all is lost because uh, no longer do we see the natural world with the, with the freshness that was once possible and no longer do we relate directly. Um, but I do wonder how, you know, uh, how we should invest ourselves in, in questions around like vocation, career, this kind of thing, because we do live in, in a world increasingly where our opportunities are found within this technocratic kind of paradigm. And I'm thinking I lived in San Francisco immediately after coming out of college. Um, and there's something in the air there, something on, on one hand, like crackling and exciting, this headiness of this is a place where development is happening and and uh, the world of, of advancements, whether it be in applications or other forms of technology, really turns on, on San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's this city is so beautiful uh, in which people are, are locked up in their boxes all, all day. Um, so I wanna ask a question of, of how we think about larger cultural movements, whether we have a responsibility to be suspicious of them, to invest ourselves uh, differently. Um, how do we, how do we, if we suspect maybe in, in, in certain departments of life, an ethical or a spiritual vacuum, uh, how can we, we start to confront this, this feeling or this sensibility that emerges? Wow, yeah. Um... Well, there's always life, you know, there's life away from technology. That's, you know, we, we can't escape it, but we can go out there and outside and touch the soil, right? We can, we can, we can be with um, whatever intact ecosystems remain around us and we can honor them and, and preserve them and work and devote a lot, you know, efforts to preserving them. Um, one of the Catholic ways for engaging technology that, that, that increasingly appears to me, I think flows out of some of the stuff we talked about Laudato see in the beginning in terms of complexity in a relationship. Um, most of the internet is based on a very simplistic market model, right? Um, you know, what do you like? Click on it and we'll give you more of that. Um, um, you know, uh, if, if, if you like this post or this image um, or this person, uh, you know, you, you, you can like them, you can retweet them, you can forward them, right? And so it, it's a marketplace of attention. The actual computation underlying those kinds of exchanges are, are very, very simplistic, right? Uh, 
one of the places this this appears to me sort of is, is the inadequacy of, of of dating apps, right? You know that that and you see all this ferment, this sort of constant bubbling of an attempt to come up with a dating app that's that's not dehumanizing, right? So you know whether it it, it gives you matches within certain degrees of relationship to your social network, whether the woman gets always gets to choose first, whatever, like all these attempts to fix these algorithms. Um, so I, you know, I'm not thrilled about a social and emotional lives being mediated by alg algorithms, but it does foreground the fact that these things are completely fungible, right? I mean, if we decided 10 years ago that a huge portion of our relationships are going to be mediated by Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, right? We didn't decide, but it just sort of happened, right? Yeah. It can be different. Um, and I think one of the things that Catholicism has to offer on the level of technology is this respect for, this amazement by, this attentiveness to the complexity of interconnections. Um, in, in other research, I'm, I'm focusing on neoliberalism and, and the early neoliberals um, and their ideas about the market as the fundamental form of human interaction. Those were conceived in a time when people were um, doing accounting with fountain pens and uh, you know, bound ledgers. Right. And so you needed some kind of very simplistic thing in order to order society. So this vision that all of society could function like a market, which is a very impoverished vision. Um, but it's also something that's bound to the limits of technology of their time. Uh, this is this is an imagination from 1938. Um, <laughs> now we have computers that do that have untold processing power. Right. Um, that can, you know, they can turn files into you know, 8K video in real time so we can watch it. Right. There's. We have endless processing power, so we can make much more complex ways of relating to one another. Um, I, again, I, I'm, I'm no fan of putting everything in social media, um, but I think Catholicism brings something to the table on the level of the imagination of those relationships, that, that we could have a different technology. We could have a technology that, that's much more attentive to those relationships and is much more attentive to uh, the full participants in, in commerce and in, in the global market, right? We now have the ability to do that. Um, you know, 1840, if you were in Oregon and you, you know, you, you, you wanted some manufactured good, well, it's what came off the train, right? Um, and that's, that's, you want it or not, right? Today, we can follow things through their entire um, uh, commodity chain, and we can know about those things. Um, and, you know, if, if you shop at a major retailer, there's that sticker, there's that tag with that big number on it, and there's all kinds of data behind that. Um, so we could make these things visible. And then become fuller agents, fuller moral subjects in the way we engage the world. Um, a small. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so in um, in closing, I wanted to, I know you're uh, doing some work here in, in the state of Oregon, and I just wanted to, to ask you how that's been going, uh, what particularly you've, you've been researching, because I know we've, it has to do with, with the wildfires that we've been experiencing and uh, people who have been displaced or people who have um, been suffering in a particular way through loss of community or or their homes um, and the way that the theological virtue of hope correlates with with their experiences um, so what 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 has that research been like you know maybe experientially what have your trips out here been like and then uh, what are what are the fruits of it what are, what are you uncovering in that work? As I returned to the H.J. Andrews Forest, uh, where I've done some earlier research, um, the Labor Day fires uh, last year swept down the McKenzie River Valley, devastating that valley, you know, just really uh, destroying the forest, destroying the town of Blue River, and 
hundreds and hundreds of homes there, thousands across the state. Um, and so I, I wanted to be in the forest and see what that was like. And I wanted to talk to people who lived through it, um, trying to think about hope. And so, uh, you know, when you go into the forest, you see that, you know, it's, it's been a year and things are growing back, right? Uh, uh, you know, it's, you go to places where there, you know, a Douglas fir was there and all that's left is a hole in the ground where the roots went down. And that's devastating. You look down and you see there's a small Douglas fir, um, the seedling coming up right in that hole, right? So like it, you see that this this can continue, right? So that that in some ways is a hope, hopeful vision, um, you know, but it'll be 30 years before that forest begins to get reestablished, uh, 100 years before it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's fully established and, you know, two to 500 years before we get back to where we were. Um, so in some ways there's a kind of hope there, but, you know, I, I feel, you know, the, the, the limits of the human time span, right? You know, the, this is not something we'll witness. The, the loss is, is continuing. When I talked to people, I was, I was really surprised that the, the, I was looking to see how, you know, they responded to the, to the devastation of the crisis and to the, the ecological destruction. And one thing that really stood out is that most people, you know, in our system, uh, you're immediately forced just into the, pragmatics of everyday life, right? You know, you need to make sure you have a computer or a ride to work, you know, and you need to argue with insurance companies. One person talked about um, arguing with the cable company trying to cancel her cable. And they said, well, we need the modem back. And she's like, the modem doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so this, this, this is how people are, you know, they've been through this moment that changed their lives, that change the ecology of, of, of Oregon and, you know, maybe a sign of, of, of the change of the world and climate change. And they're forced to have these, you know, these mundane um, uh, struggles. Um, and I was struck, we don't really have a way to process that. So the big question I've been asking out of that is um, what kind of seeing would be adequate to these kinds of moments, right? So, um, you know, for the people who live through them and then for the rest of us, like, you know, we are now used to this. This is not a new thing. We, you know, we go on Twitter and see the video footage of someone driving through an inferno, right? How many times have I seen that now? How many different fires have I seen that on, right? And I watch it and I try to attend to it. Um, I watch the people interviewed at the, the emergency camps. How can I attend to this possibly as, you know, as very likely a moment in the unwinding of, of, of the climate in these ecosystems? What sort of attention would be worthy of that? And so I've been drawn to some of the, the, the biblical traditions of apocalyptic, not in the sense of these visions of raining fire and you know, the sun turning blood red, although both of those things happened um, and are still happening, um, but in the sense of that the catastrophe, that moments of catastrophe are really um, dense with meaning, right? And, and, and we're learning there about, um, not just about change, but about what's wrong with what we're doing. Um, and that the voices of the victims, you know, apocalyptic writing is often written in the face of, of empires, right? Seemingly intractable ones, right? And it's about their end. Um, the voice of those left out of the story, um, what do they have to say? And I'm struck in particular by our relationship to people who are traumatized. You know, we, we owe them, we, we owe them care. Uh, we owe them support. But also I think uh, we have so much to learn from them, right? They've seen part of the end of the world. They can't look away from the video that happened. You know, we, we watch it for five minutes and see what's next in the stream, right? They've lived through that and it's still in them. So what, you know, attending to them is, is not just something we owe them, which we do, right? But it's, there's, there's the possibility of learning more about where we really are. 
strikes me in, in talking to people as well that the people around the fires feel a certain guilt about it, that you know, they lived through the smoke, um, through the you know, noon dark skies, and this great disaster is happening, but it also disrupted their lives in ways that it's, you know, it's rather banal, right? I, I can't go outside to exercise, or I, you know, I, I, I can't complete my errands today or something like that, right? Um, I think in that feeling of guilt, there's something to attend to as well, that we're, in some ways, we know what's going on. And so I, I'm pushed more and more towards uh, attending to the emotions that these kinds of crises bring up, both in the direct victims and also in you know what I think we could say the sort of bystanders for now, right? You know, the fire stopped there, but and I know it could have been me. Um, yeah. The hurricanes over there, I know it could have been me. That those feelings really tell us about where we are, perhaps more than the public discourse does, which just goes about its same thing, right? You know, what, what's the next story? You know, fire and then celebrity crisis, right? Um, <laughs> we just keep cranking through the stories. Um, in those emotions, there's something that stops us. And I think, I, I suspect that Christianity, that Catholicism has some resources for that. I, I increasingly think of, um, you know, say Franciscan mysticism about the suffering of Jesus. I think the, the tradition of the mother of sorrows, right? We have these traditions of, of these, these very emotional, affective forms of prayer and meditation. Uh, that, that those might have something to offer in these moments of crisis. That there's there's a way of seeing there that that we we feel we, we can if we think about it for a second we we know we lack right. Um, you know these disasters happen. We had the summer of fire last year, last summer. You know we know that 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 really marked something right. Australia, um, the Arctic, Siberia, Brazil, California, Oregon. Um, so we see this, and, and part of us knows, but 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 we just have to go on with life. And I think that that discomfort, that turmoil we feel, there's there's something to attend to spiritually that could really help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when you uh, gave our Abide talk that that was what you left us with right after the series of questions came in. Um, we were the next few days beginning to experience, that was one of the crazy heat waves that we had up upwards of 100 degrees. Uh, and you, you said, well, just pay attention. <laughs> how does, you know, how does this feel within yourself? And um, you're right, it, it, it gets beyond even, not just media storylines, but the like constant checking of your phone to see, okay, how hot is it really? Uh, which can leave you at a remove from experiencing the heat and, and, um, and um, confronting it on a, on a deeper or, or a different level. I mean, I, I see this as, as recurringly an important point to be made, um, just a reminder that there's another space from which to come at these things. Because part of the impact of these media stories isn't just that we have certain facts or um, ideas in our head, but they're consumed by them. It's this kind of constantly running process in which we don't slow down and take stock of ourselves. Um, so I love that, that you return us to the um, spirituality of these situations, which is a deeper ground and in a way a more authentic place to start. Um, so thank you for all of your reflections today. Um, and we hope to be able to catch up with you another time soon. Um, let us know what happens with the, the fruits of your research. If you end up writing a book or an article, we'd love to share it. Oh, great, great time. Be happy to do that. Um, all right. Thanks again for the opportunities to speak with you on these two occasions. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.